As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Out of the street corners they scream. You knew it was coming. You've been waiting for this for months. Rumor hardened into fear and now they scream at you. The sirens, their hysterical wail tearing through the white noise of the city. And you run. You run to pick up those things that can never be replaced. A picture of them in the days when they still loved you. Your mother's wedding ring. And then you turn to your shelf of games. You only have room for five. Five games for Doomsday. Five Games for Doomsday is a show in which board game personalities are thrust into a cabin in the woods to outrun an oncoming disaster, but can only take five of their games with them. But which will they choose? My guest this week could best be described as a giver. A mental health nurse who's been on the board of a charity, written Britain's number two parenting blog, and arranged a charity walk that bisected Britain, which raised tens of thousands for those struck by horrendous misfortune. He not only brings comfort and aid to the most vulnerable in our society, but he's managed to have a byline as the host of gaming's first legitimate comedy podcast this game is broken my guest this week is dan hughes welcome dan hello so first of all how hard was it for you to choose these games um it was it was quite hard i must admit i i took the brief very seriously so these aren't necessarily my my top five games these are the games that i genuinely would want with me uh, during a, a kind of apocalyptic type situation, which is one of my worst nightmares, actually, uh, and it's something that keeps me awake at night. So, thanks for for putting that. No, no problem. It's I, I like to make people paranoid. So, so what criteria did you use? Was it sentimentality? Was it pure practicality? That you know, it's something that I can play longest and that sort of stuff. Yes, that was basically. It. I, I needed longevity. I needed variety within the game, so I wouldn't get bored of it after ten plays. Um, and and I needed. Um, I needed it to, to fit various different situations, you know, various different gaming moods I, I can get find myself in, really. So I needed a wide variety, and every one of them needed to have some kind of longevity to them. So, so yeah. So this is a question I've been asking a few of my guests. Why game? What value do you see in it? Um, I think I'm quite a, a socially inept person at the at the core of it. I mean, I, I can I can falsify social aptitude. Um, how does this manifest itself? It, it manifests itself in kind of, I suppose you'd call it social anxiety or, ju- or just awkwardness or not quite knowing where to put yourself in a, a situation with new people, really. I'm very comfortable with people I know well. Um, I'm very comfortable in a position where I have a, a level of 
of power or seniority over other people. Um, but I'm not very comfortable on a kind of meeting people on a, on an eye to eye level. Um, and I don't think many people are really, or, or, well, that's not true, but I, I think there are lots of people in a similar situation to me. And for me, gaming is that great level. If you, if you don't, if you want to meet new people, but you don't feel confident in, in talking to them and small talk, I'm dreadful at small talk. Then you've got a board there to look at. And then you look up, you look at them in the eye, you talk to them for a bit, and then you look back down the board. Um, I think it's the, the great level I've met. I've, I've got, oh, dozens and, I've got dozens and dozens more friends now than I ever did before I, I really got into board gaming. And that's, that's purely down to the, the social lubricant that gaming kind of provides me, I think. And the people you know in gaming, are they, friends or are they people with whom you play games there's a split i think i I would certainly consider some of them friends some of them i've i've gone away with some of them i spend time with socially um outside of gaming although although not very often to be fair thinking about it but no some some i definitely consider friends um people i can rely on people i can chat to and then but they kind of i'd say about 80 percent are kind of acquaintances um and then there's that kind of five percent which you, you you wouldn't uh, just sacks of meat to to move pawns around with, basically. And so, gaming obviously from from the work you've done on the dice tower has bled into your family life. Uh, what benefit do you think gaming brings to the parent child relationship? I, th- I think gaming's a, a massively useful tool for a parent and child. Um, uh, yes, I was I was talking mainly about my my own social life there, but. But being able to game with my kids is, is a wonderful way of, of bonding with them, a wonderful way of um, an educational without being preachy type thing. You know, um, you can you can see uh, my youngest Cora develop through the games. Um, you can see her being quite advanced in logical thinking, um, just just purely from from the games we we play together. And it's again, it's another structured way of playing on a, on a kind of equal level playing field without that power dynamic of the the parent child or with less of a power dynamic you know you never eradicate that completely um and and a way of connecting with your kids um that doesn't involve a screen that doesn't involve you forcing them to do something they don't want to do it's it's a shared activity that's equally enjoyable for both of them you may not be getting the same level of enjoyment out of the game because you're going to be playing pretty basic games with the kid but you're enjoying their company and they're enjoying your company and and that's that's invaluable really in in a parenting relationship and do you think gaming is devalued? It's looked down upon in the benefits that it can give in a social context, but also in an educational context. I, I don't know. I, I don't. I, I do know um, people who game with kids for a living. Uh, Imagination Gaming, the people who do the uh, the games for the UK Games Expo, they they're based in in Huddersfield, or certainly were until very recently. Um, and they go around schools and libraries and things like that. The local libraries around here all have a, a board game selection. Um, the Cora goes to a board game club at school, although it's filled with Kaplunk and, uh, and, you know, Buckaroo and things, but, but still. And, and part of the, um, part of the, we, when, when Cora went to school, before she went to school, the part of the letters that we got to say how to prepare your kids for school was like, I'm mean, teach them to tie their shoelaces, teach them to get their coat on and play as many bell games with them as possible because it, it's that structure and that, and, and the educational benefits it gets for it. So I, I don't know if you want me to say no, I don't think they are, but I think many, many teachers, are, you know, value the value play as, as a learning experience, really. So let's go back to the beginning. You grew up in a, a town or a village, would you call it? Uh, I think it's officially a town. It's, it's on that borderline between town and village, I'd argue. But for all of those people who aren't British, this might be one of the famous, most famous town-stroke villages in the country. You grew up in a place called Homefirth in Yorkshire, which is, which is a very beautiful place, but is also the setting for a very famous British sitcom called Last of the Summer Wine, which is, I guess, classic Sunday night viewing. How was it growing how was it growing up in a place that was constantly besieged by television cameras and actors and well known faces? Um well obviously when you're growing up you don't you don't notice anything different. I mean I was right in the middle of it. My house uh, my home was directly opposite 
one of the main characters' homes within the series, um, Clegg. And so we had uh, film cameras outside our doors, near, you know, for six months of the year. Um, and the, the, the film the film crew were all very friendly, gave me cakes and things from their lunch things. Uh, occasionally you had to go the long way around when you walked from school because because you couldn't go through a place because they were filming there. But but Holmfirst is a very interesting town in that it, it's it's kind of destiny was very, very, very tied up with that sitcom. It's, it's it's longest sitcom in the world, longest running sitcom in the world. I think Simpsons may have just beat it now. Um, but it was, it was going for a long time, 25 years, I think. And it was very much centered in the town. It wasn't just occasional outside shots. It was the most of the activities were outside in the local area, shot on location. So, so it had a very big identity with that, with the, with the village. Um, and it gave me a very much a sense of, of pride really uh, this is this the place where i live is worthy worthy of all this attention um and and yeah and and it made me appreciate the beauty of where i live because it is a very beautiful area um there's many many tv shows set around here just because of the the beauty of the the, the huddersfield and the surrounding area the home firth and yeah it, it gave me a, a a real pride in where i lived and last of the summer wine is kind of unique in that most of the cast were elderly was there a a fear if the fortunes of the town were connected was there a fear that the cast would pop their clogs and it would no longer be a factor it's incredible isn't it i mean this is a this is a show that was based on pensioners and it started 25 it lasted for 25 years you know these people got these actors got very very elderly while they did this they, uh, two of them are buried in the um, in the town itself they they love the town so much um i think there probably was i think there was definitely uh, kind of the, the Chamber of Commerce and things like that. I, I was involved in the uh, Amateur Dramatics Society over there. Um, and uh, Bill Owen, the, who played Compo, actually was in one of our productions. I mean, that's how that's how kind of tied to the town he was. Um, he, he recorded the voice for a character and stuff, but still it, it showed quite a, a love for the, for the community there. Um, and I think around the edges, the shopkeepers especially, are very aware... And, and certainly it, it's gone downhill a little now, although it's, it, it got so middle class from the attention that this, uh, this program showed it that it's, it's kind of a self-sustaining middle class area now. As when the show first started, it was very working class and, and was actually quite a grimy place to be, uh, apparently. And it kind of rose as the tourism just pumped more and more money into the area. So yeah, I think there was a fear. I mean, they're still doing last of the summer wine tours now and it's been over for 10 years. It's, it's that ingrained in the public consciousness. So, moving on to your first game then you've chosen probably not only the biggest most recognizable game but possibly the most influential game i think this is a game that has influenced computer games incredibly but it's also influenced film and television and you've chosen dungeons and dragons firstly why well, as I say, um, I, I thought long and hard about this question, and Dungeons and Dragons, or, or any role-playing game really, but Dungeons and Dragons is the one that sprung to mind. Is the most long-lived. It's, it's, it's the game that you has got the most replayability of all the games because it's limited only by your own imagination, really. Um, it's it's a game that you can play over and over again without seeing the same thing. It's a game you can play repeatedly with the same group of people, and it only gets better with repeated plays, not gets more and more dull. So so it's cheating a little bit. It's not a board game, but it, it's so it's so intrinsically woven into most board gamers' kind of being. It's, it was a gateway game for for many many people of my generation. You know. 40 year olds or so um maybe not so much the younger crowd coming through maybe i don't think dungeons and dragons has the same kind of cultural clout that it did 20 years ago um in, and in the 80s but but still it, it's it's woven in there you'd, you'd be hard pressed to find a game of my age who who didn't play D when they were 18 so what was your first experience with D D? Um, I kind of started hanging around with a, with a, with a bunch of, I suppose you'd call them geeks. I don't know. A bunch of friends when I was, um, when I was 17, 18, who, who were playing it. Um, and then I quickly kind of said, Oh, I, I, you know, I, I got into that. I, I played a couple of things and then, then suddenly found myself as the, the DM I, and, and, and loved it. I, I mean, I was dreadful. Um, I, <laughs> I'm, how is someone dreadful at D and D? Well, because I tried to plan everything and then when they didn't, when they didn't go the way I wanted them to go, I was completely lost. But but I, but I I credit D and D with with a lot of my kind of personal development almost uh, 
between that and, and amateur dramatics that I did when I was younger, it brought me out of myself. I was an incredibly shy kid. I mean, I talk about myself being socially inept now, but I, I was painfully shy to the point of disability when I was a young kid. And, and those two things, D&D giving me the confidence to kind of improvise and put myself forward and, and, and dramatics to stand on a stage and, and perform lines, um, both, both pushed me forward as a, as a human being, I think. Um, I, th- I think D&D is really valuable for that. I think it can really bring people, people out themselves. And I, and I think it's probably, probably responsible for a lot of kind of quite socially inept people's personal growth um i think i think it's really i think it's wonderful is is role playing i really do so do you so i th- i think you've pretty much already answered this question but do you think D really does reserve deserve the reverence it commands I, I think so i think it's a game that is is apart from and if you want to go really geeky now apart from fourth edition which was universally kind of disliked it, it's kind of a game that in in each iteration has been the top of its class really you know you had the you had basic D. I don't I, that was before my time but then second edition D. that was the kind of pinnacle of role-playing games third edition brought in kind of weird kind of copyright laws where other people were allowed to develop stuff for them and that that really kind of boosted the role-playing industry and now fourth edition failed but but fifth edition is bringing people back and everyone's talking about how elegant and lovely the system is and it is i, I mean i'm playing at the moment it's a fantastic system, best one I've played, and and it, you know I, I know there are all these independent um, ones, but but D and D is just your your bread and butter, your basic, really solid bedrock for for role playing games to to go off, and there's never really been an equal in my in my view. So, are you running a game at the moment? Or yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm GMing a game at the moment. Yeah, um, just getting back into it. I'm, I'm very much an omni gamer. I, I play. I like to play lots of things. I like to play lots of genres. I like to play the. The best something can offer, really, and D and D that for that is is that's that's the pinnacle of RPGs for me. And do you hope one day to play with your kids, or are you playing with your kids already? Um, I don't know, to be honest, I don't know. But the way I play D and D is is quite boisterous, um, and I don't know if I'll ever have that level of boisterousness with my kids. Um, the kind of uh, insulting and teasing, and you know that that kind of banter for better word i know i know it's not the best word in the world um so so i don't know i mean yeah maybe maybe i don't know again there's a there's a dynamic between a parent and a child which i'm not sure is ideal for for that you know but but it'd be interesting to try it I, really what i want them to do is is discover that for themselves with their own friendship groups i think D is something to play with friends um, and, and I got some very, very valuable for friends I'm still friends with now. I, I'm, I'm still very good friends with all the people I used to play D&D with. I still see them regularly. Um, it's a bonding experience for a friendship group rather than a parent and child, I think. So you studied media studies and then you decide you decided it wasn't for you. And you took pretty much a 180 degree turn and you became a nurse. What was the motivation behind that? I, I was watching Deep Impact. Have you ever seen Deep Impact with Morgan Freeman and virtually every single character in the actor in the world? I, and, I, uh, thankfully, I haven't. No. <laughs> well, there's a scene in Deep Impact where um, they're they're filling up the uh, the kind of shelters basically in order to, to repopulate the earth at a later point, and the people going to the shelters, all the people that are useful in society. And I, I looked at my media studies degree and I, I thought, journalism, hmm. And then I thought to myself, would I be in that shelter? Would I be somebody who would be, be useful to society? And, and quite frankly, I wouldn't. Um, there, there's, there, there's very little value in a journalist, certainly not the kind of journalist I was training to be. I had a look at my life and I, I looked at what I valued. And while I was at university, I did a, uh, a Samaritans, like, I don't know, a suicide helpline type, type. I was involved with that kind of organization. Um, and, uh, and I got very heavily involved in that, and um, and I looked at that, and I thought this this is what I really find valuable. Um, I've never enjoyed work. I've I've never been somebody who 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 you know people say find what your passion is, and you'll never work a day in your life. Well, that's not, I've never been me. When as soon as I get paid for anything, I resent it bitterly. Um, but. But I think it's more important to believe in what you work is rather than to enjoy your work. And I certainly believe in what I'm, I do now. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a nurse, but I'm also a mental health nurse. I'm a psychiatric nurse. Um, and, you know, I help people, I would like to think, or at least I try and help people. And, and that's, that's important. And it's something that I would get put in the shelter for and survive the rest of you bastards. And so why did you go into mental health nursing as opposed to 
standard nursing, for want of a better term? Well, I did start training as a, as a general nurse. Um, I did start training as a general nurse. And I did I did a few placements. Um, so you, you go to various wards and things like that. And it was okay. You know, I, I did a stroke ward. I wiped people's bums. You know, I, I helped them to the toilet. I helped feed them. It was all very rewarding. And then I went, as part of your nurse training back then, it's not the same now, but as part of your nurse training back then, used to do a, a children's ward placement used to do a maternity so he used to be do the with the midwives um and he used to do one with learn people with learning difficulties and he did one with people with mental health problems and i just saw what they were doing there and i thought this is is so much better suited to me being the the non-dexterous clumsy fool that i am you know where giving intricate injections and all that kind of stuff or i can be sat down with somebody in the house and and talking to them and i was i was much better at talking to them as bad as i am at small talk and things I, I I I like to think I'm I'm quite good at making quite a, a a deep personal connection with somebody relatively quickly and and being there for them and and that's that's what I ended up enjoying so so I, I decided to switch from general nursing to mental health nursing and uh, and then quickly kind of followed from there really and, and did my nurse training got a succession of jobs and and here I am and so without being too specific what is the role of a mental health nurse. There's a variety of roles. There's a variety of different roles. Um, what, what I have done for the majority of my career is I've worked in, in crisis teams. So a crisis team is you would get a phone call from the police or A&E or a GP saying that somebody was suicidal or acting very bizarrely or their family couldn't cope with them or whatever. Um, and I would go out, I would assess that person so on my own i'd either go to the police cells i go to a and e i go to their home i would talk to them i would assess what's going on and, and assess the risks um of what's going on you know the risk to the, the person's self the risk to other people around them the risk of self-neglect all these kind of different risks i could go through them all but i won't um and then i'd make a decision about what to do about that person so whether that person needed to be in hospital whether that person or whether that person just needed a quick word there and there. I mean, you'd be amazed how many suicidal people you that turn up at A&E, you can sit down with for an hour, two hours, talk them through what's going on, send them on the way, and they never need any input ever again. Um, or there's there's the other thing that I used to do, which is, is provide what we call home-based treatment. So that's somebody who's quite poorly um, but doesn't need hospital. Um, we like to keep people out of hospital if possible because – um, because hospital is not a particularly therapeutic place. It's full of people who are quite disturbed. It's, it's, it's a place where all responsibility is taken away from you. So you never learn to cope with a crisis because if you put in hospital every time there's a crisis, then you just let the hospital cure it and then you go home and the next crisis, you haven't got those tools to deal with that crisis yourself, basically. So, so we treat them at home. We visit them every day. I mean, we can visit people up to three times a day. Um, provide some very intensive input. Um, get them reviewed by medics obviously you know medication is very useful and then um and then hopefully when things start improving we can discharge them or send them to another service that's slightly less intensive or something like that so that's basically what i do for a nutshell in a nutshell so i had the unfortunate situation to have to spend time in a hospital because a family member was dying and the nurses offered in an incredible support they did an incredible job but one thing i noticed was how hard they worked and how harrowing the job must be at times how do you cope um <laughs> i think i think everything you get used to things if that makes any sense you know there's only there's a people people sometimes say oh i can't deal with the stress in your job but i don't think my job is particularly any more stressful than anyone else's it's just you you I think there's levels of stress that you can cope with, levels of stress you can experience. And I don't think my level of stress is any different to anyone else's working in a high-pressured accountancy firm or whatever. You know, we feel stress in the same physiological way. I suppose the, the key is not to take that stress home with you, um, and and that's and that's very key. Um, and the way I the way I cope is is by having you have you have your armor. You know, you 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 need to be there for the person, but you also you need to be aware that you're a professional. And they are the patient, and there's a there's a there's there's a barrier between you. Unfortunately, it's not the same as talking to your best friend who's suicidal, um, because that that goes right into your core. You need that that sheen of an armor to tie, try and you know protect yourself, because you need to protect yourself. You can't you can't give hundred percent to absolutely everybody. Because 
because you you just combust. I think um, I, I keep my private life and my professional life very separate. I mean, some people uh, I know. My friend Nick Murphy, who, who do I do a podcast with, he's a, he's a drugs and alcohol um, worker. He works in a, in a rehab center for people with drugs and alcohol problems. And he uses board games within his therapy. And people have asked me if I do that. And I, I don't because I want that separate. I, and I don't socialize with any of my workmates because I want my work. I want, as soon as I get in my car, my car journey is my decompressing time. And I'm not no longer thinking about work when I go through my front door. Uh, and I think if I was thinking about work, then that's when, when things start to crumble, really. I mean, I'm fortunate in the type of team I work in is that you, we work in a, we work in a team based approach, but that, that, that doesn't matter. But basically what, what happens is if I'm very concerned about somebody, I say to the next person, I'm really concerned about them. And then it's their responsibility, if that makes any sense. Um, and, and so. And so by that, that way I can go home and not, and try not to. I mean, occasionally I do worry about people, but, but most of the time I'm able to go home and, and be satisfied that they're being looked after by somebody else. So we move from the stress of work to the stress of not being able to get the amount of tricks that you bid on. <laughs> your, your, your next game is the king of trick-taking games, one of the most enjoyable games I've ever played. Probably my number three in all-time favourite games ever, and this is Skulking. Explain why Skulking is so good. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if the game itself is good. I th- it's a great game. I'm not actually an expert in trick-taking games. Um, I think this is probably the only one I've ever played. I played Chronicle once and didn't understand it because I didn't quite understand what a trick-taking game was. I've never played Skulking when I haven't had a riotous time. I've never played Skulking when... Everybody in the table hasn't been laughing, joking, um, you know, giving each other trash talk, all that kind of stuff. It's always been a game that's kind of elicited fun. It, it, it's, it's kind of the embodiment of fun in board gaming for me. Um, it's not particularly take that y, although there is a bit of take that around the edges. Um, it's the perfect length. Um, it's, it's basically a game where it's a trick taking game where you're just bidding, betting on what, how many tricks you can take. Uh, ultimately and then it kind of goes on for 10 rounds and as i say i've never played it and not not had a thoroughly fantastic time and everyone i've played it with has ended up buying their own copy so so as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And, and and reporting the same. It's just a wonderful game. It's so cheap. It's so cheap. <laughs> it's such a such a fantastic game. It reminds me of those times that 
I don't know if you did it yourself, Ben, but when, when I was doing my A-levels, when I was sixth form college, about 17, 18, playing with a group of friends, cards in the common room, obviously not skulking, but that kind of camaraderie and that kind of doesn't really matter who wins, but the, the, the joking and the side conversations and just the, just, it's like the beginning of Roseanne. That's what it feels like for me playing skulking. I think it's really interesting because these, I played a lot of trick taking games and I played a lot of card games when I was doing my A-level. But, but these hobby, traditional card games are interesting because they have a definite end point whereas the other games you just play ad infinitum yeah 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 that's true uh, yeah it's interesting yeah and and i think i think some of the the, the traditional games are really overlooked by um by gamers as well I'm, I'm sure if you got a deck of cards out i mean i really should have said a deck of cards shouldn't i although i don't know that many traditional deck deck of cards games but there's nothing wrong with them it's just a snobbism that it needs to be its own printed card that the uh that <laughs> That gamers, uh, you know, desire. So, where did you find out about Skullcake? I, I played it at a convention. I played it. My friend Luke um, played it at a convention, um, and I instantly went out and bought it. And then I played it at the next convention um, I went to. Um, it, 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 it's a game I play with friends, but usually in a, in a large group setting rather than rather than just at a normal games night. It's one I bring out. You know, when I go, I went to Dice Tower Con. I brought, you know, I introduced a lot of people to it there. I go to a, a gaming event called StabCon in Manchester. Uh, play it there. I, every year I organize a, a small kind of almost my own gathering of friends in the Yorkshire Dales where like 20, 30 people come together for a weekend to play games and I play it there. Kind of a, kind of an event card game for me, really. It's not one I just get out at a normal games night, although I, I, I have done and it's gone down equally as well. It's, it's just wonderful. And so why are you taking this one to the cabin? Well, I'm taking this one because because I've never not played it and, and not had a great time. And I, I'm guessing in the apocalypse, great times are going to be pretty hard to uh, come by. So, um, so yeah, it, it, it fills the niche of, of that, as I say, that Roseanne game, the the having fun with your friends. It's the, the epitome of fun in gaming for me is, is this one. So you started writing a parenting blog, Firstly, explain what the blog was, because I think the the end result of this blog was pretty astonishing. Um, it was it was just a, a, a place where I recorded, you know, various trials and tribulations of being a, a, a father. And I, at that point, I was a, a part time stay at home dad as well. My wife worked full time, and I worked part time. And this was for my youngest child, Amy, who's who's now fourteen, but was was about two at the time. So so it's quite a long time ago, and it's back where blogging. You know, back when blogging was king, when people actually used to read blogs, uh, and they kind of—I I just did it as a as a way of ex, a creative, ex, you know, creative exercise. Really, I've always wanted—I've always done something creative, um, something just to, for its own sake. Um, and I wanted to kind of document my my kids growing up. Uh, I wanted to amuse other people, um, and and I just started writing um, and and interacting with people on on the internet. As, as as we all do these days, but then it wasn't Web two point where it's all hosted on Facebook or or something like that. This was kind of everyone had their own site, and you went and read everyone else's blogs and then interacted in that way. It was very very it's a wild west, really, a very punk rock way of doing it. Um, you know, we were all publishing our own little mini magazines, talking about whatever we wanted to talk about. And so, what kind of things were you talking about? Were you offering advice, or were you just blowing off steam? No, I wasn't doing either of those things really. I was more kind of humorous anecdotes, it, I, pretty saccharine stuff as well. Um, occasionally I'd run silly competitions. Occasionally I'd put out a kind of proto podcast before even podcasting was a thing, I think, where I used to play my, you know, pretend to be a radio DJ and, and play 10 songs and, and do a little bit of introduction between each one. To be honest, it's very difficult to remember. I used to write it daily for about five years. It's very difficult to remember what I put. It was whatever was on my mind, really. It was like a, a little mini editorial in my own newspaper. Um, very, very much a vanity, vanity project, but people used to enjoy reading it. And I, you know, I gained a lot of friends. Again, this is a, a place that was a kind of nexus point of gaining friends for me. I've got friends all over the, the world through this that I'm still in contact with now. And in the bio you sent me, you said that it was Britain's second most popular parenting blog. What does that mean in terms of numbers? How many people were reading it? Well, it, it's it's difficult to say. I mean, these were metrics um, 
done by this this external external uh, website, which which was trying to monetize blogging, which was its ultimate downfall in my in my opinion. Um, but but for a while, I was listed as being one of the most influential um, bloggers in in the UK. I can't remember how they they made it. Certainly wasn't my uh, my download numbers they weren't looking at because I never gave them any. Um, I, I, I don't know. I can't remember quite exactly how many. It, it kind of went into the thousands. I once got recognised in the street from a blog, which was exceptionally weird. Um, but but yeah, quite a few people used to read regularly. Um, but but it, it was more. It wasn't so much about the numbers, really. It was more about the the links you found with with other bloggers. It was very very incestuous uh, world uh, at that point uh, within blogging, and it still is. I think bloggers were reading each other's blogs. It wasn't like a it wasn't a mass market type thing. People weren't all coming to read my blog. It was it was more of a community type type effort. I, I always thought and that's what I loved about it, and and that's eventually what what killed it is that that wall went away. Um, over over time, more and more companies started trying to trying to get people to be brand ambassadors and and try to get key influencers within the parenting. And it's back when Mumsnet was starting to come you know, quite big and, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I took advantage for it a while. I got a free holiday to France out of it. I got got a Blu-ray player back when Blu-ray players were quite exciting. Um, got sent to London by Disney to who courted me, all, all sorts of stuff like that. But but the as I said to you before, the, the, the more kind of financial reward I get for something, the more I start resenting it. Um, and it, it no longer felt like a creative exercise to me. It felt like, a you know, a, a, a job. Is, is what it ended up feeling like. And it also, as my kids were getting older, it felt like I was exploiting them. Um, very much like I do with Cora. Um, but felt like I was exploiting them, um, to, to gain that audience, to gain that free holiday to France, to gain that DVD player, to gain that new thing or whatever. And, and I started to become very, very uncomfortable with it. And it started kind of withering and dying for me that kind of medium the blogging medium certainly the parent blogging medium and so you never you never wanted to make that transition into being a professional blogger a professional content creator i i, I did for a while i um I, I used to write for xbox um xbox contacted me and i i got paid i think 100 pounds for 500 words and the, the 100 500 words i was uh, giving them were, were just were just me basically just just churning out generic list you know what i mean buzzfeed list type stuff or the, the you know the, before that happened but that's what it was it was just all clickbait and, and that kind of stuff and again it killed it I, I don't know what it is about being paid for things but i, I stopped enjoying writing um uh yeah it's interesting i i've never been able to put my finger on it but as soon as i get paid for something I start resenting the time I spend on it. So was it the blog that led you to being the chair of a charity or on the board of a charity? No, no. I've got one of my best friends from, from college, one of the people that I used to hang around with, one of the geeks, basically. Um, he's He had a child, same age as my eldest, um, and when they were three years old, they died, unfortunately. They died of pneumonia. They just woke up in the morning, went into his room, and he, and he, was, he was laying there dead. Um, and, and this profoundly affected me i mean this was a child the same age as my daughter this was somebody i grew up with and um they they could have very easily been destroyed by that um and i think i probably would have been destroyed by that if i'm absolutely honest um and you know i'm not saying i'm not saying they weren't destroyed by it but i'm not saying it's something they won't they, they live with that every day of their lives but they also they also managed to turn it into into some a positive force really they wanted to his name was joseph um and they wanted joseph if Joseph wasn't able to make his mark on the world he's himself, they wanted to do it on his behalf. And so they set up a charity, the Joseph Salmon Trust, who are a charity who basically use, they pay for funerals and headstones of, of, of children because, because, um, when, when you lose a child, you, especially a young child, usually not in a particularly good financial situation, you know, no, no, no new parent is or no, no parent is really. Well, you know, it's not a time in your life where you're comfortably off. Um, and, Often there's 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 a, there's a real sense of duty and wanting to do the best by your child, and the need to do the last thing for them, um, and that's to to give them a funeral. And you know, a cheap funeral just doesn't feel right. Um, and you know, a, 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 they want a headstone they can visit. Usually, usually people who've lost children want the child to be buried rather than cremated, so they can go somewhere and visit them, and and use it as a as a kind of focus for their grief. Um, 
and that's what they do. They buy headstones for people. They, it's not always that. Sometimes they, if somebody's self-employed, mm-hmm. they might give them some money to tide them over so they can take some time off work, um, in order to grieve. Um, and it's, it's something I really believe in strongly. And because, and because I, uh, because I was his friend and because I wanted to support, it kind of became almost a mission for me to, to, to raise as much money for this charity as possible. Just, just to show my friend that I, I cared. About what what was go- he was going through, and and so you you told me that these two things came together in that you arranged a charity walk, and people who had written uh, people who had read your blog joined you on this. Yes, yeah, um, we we had about forty people um, walk the length of Hadrian's Wall, which is a, 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 a basically a, an old Roman wall that separates used to separate Scotland from England. So we walked the width of the country. Um, we had, we had people from America, quite a number of people from America. We had people from Holland, um, and people from all over the UK. We had army majors. We had a professor of marketing. We had a dustbin, not dustbin man. We had a policeman. Uh, we had people who just worked in mills. We had every, every, uh, ilk, shape and, and, you know, and they were all brought together. But I mean, it sounds quite egotistical to say, but they're all brought together by either the blog. Um, they're all readers of the blog and, 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 and obviously, Joseph's death and, and things like that became quite a focus of 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 my my uh, my blogging for a while. Uh, or they were they were friends I'd met personally, or friends of um, Neil, who was the, the father of Joseph. Um, and and we just came together and and and, and walked the, the length of the country, or the width of the country rather. <laughs> that length would be a bit further um, over a number of days. And it it was it was it was defi- It was a kind of life defining moment. Really, um, it was incredibly stressful because I, I worked on this for a year before it happened. There was a lot of organisation that went into it. Um, it's quite lo- logistical nightmares, uh, you know, as much as anything else. Finding places for people to sleep. But we did it, and we raised about I think thirty five grand, uh, which is a year's wages, um, which I'm happy with. You know, I, I, I feel that's a, a very productive use of the time I spent. Um, and you know, it wasn't just me. You know, other the, the people who went with me did a lot of fundraising. Um, uh, you know, it was it was a, a real group effort, um, and you know, it, it was very rewarding. But that was the death of the blog, actually, because it was so much energy to, to, to put that into place. I, one of the people who, who, they didn't actually walk it, they cycled it. A group of people cycled it as well. And, and they said every time they do a long cycle ride, they end up throwing their bike into a, in, into the corner of the garage and never touching it again for six months because they're so tired of it. And, and that's what happened with me. I was put so much energy into the blog and so much energy into organizing this thing that as soon as it was over, I, I threw the blog into the, the corner of the garage. And by the time I even looked at it again, uh, you know, that, that whole urge to create it had, had passed for me. So that was the death of it, but it went out in a blaze of glory. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'm glad it went because we, we managed to, we managed to help a lot of people. So your next game is much, much different to your previous two. Whereas your, your previous two are, one is light and riotous and raucous. And the, the other one is very much story based. This one is a heavy strategy game. This is Nippon. Why? Why did you choose this one? Probably mainly because I'm very good at it. I don't know why, but there's, there's something about Nippon that that just clicks in all my brain, uh, and you know I'm able to, to to actually play it and win it. And I think ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm probably tend towards in my gaming taste tend towards the medium to heavy euros. That's 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 what I probably play most of. Um, and Nippon for me is is one of the most most perfect heavy, heavy, medium to heavy Euros. I don't know. It's about as heavy as I like going, to be fair. I don't like any... I played Lisboa the other day and it was just, no, too much. But Nippon, I just think it's very elegant. I think it, I think it interacts with itself very well. Um, it's, it's a action selection game, um, and it's an area control game, but I don't generally like area control games because it kind of triggers my lizard brain. I get very competitive and I don't like that, that feeling of aggression within myself. It's not something I enjoy. Um, but 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 I like games that do what they do best. I think D and D does what it does best. Skull King does what it does best. And Nippon for me is is kind of the it, it's the best Euro. I think it, it's it's lovely. Um, the theme's not particularly important to me. It, it doesn't doesn't bother me at all. Uh, it, it, it's themes around the kind of industrialization of uh, feudal J- Japan. I think. Um, but I'm not bothered about theme because that's not what it's doing. I mean, it's, it's tacked on. It's useful. It's there because it gives, it lets you have a shape on the board. <laughs> but if I want theme, I'll go to D and D. 
Um, but if I want thinky Euro-y-ness, I'll go to Nippon. So why should people play Nippon? Um, because because it's good. <laughs> this is why I'm not a board game reviewer, because it is good. Um, be, because it, it does, it's elegant, um, it's very intricate, there's all sorts of wonderful systems that all interlocked love perfectly and you can't do something without doing something else you can't move that lever without without turning that cog you can't go up this track without first going up that track but it's enough you need to do all this efficiently you need you need to work out where you want to go and work out what you want to do and you need to be thinking four or five turns ahead all the time because because there's no you're not going to get anywhere near winning unless unless that's where where you're going um you can't just react to things it's got to be all planned um, and, and I really love it for that. So I want to talk to you more broadly about mental health and society. Have you, in the time that you've been working as a mental health nurse, have you seen attitudes to mental health changing, broadly speaking? I think, I think broadly speaking, yes. I think certainly if, you, if you're talking about depression and anxiety, um, they've become they've become very very accepted as as conditions uh you know especially kind of milder depression and anxiety i think there's a there's a real risk uh of of over medicalizing things like worry sadness grief you know we don't need to put we don't need to put tablets to human emotions i don't think um, in my job, I see, I see the extremes. I pe- see the people in absolute torment of various things. So, so I'm kind of, I've almost got kind of overexposure to, to, to these kind of things. I mean, and I, I, you know, I've, I've suffered with low moods. I've suffered with anxiety, um, and things, but, but I, I'm quite reluctant to label them as depression and anxiety because I've seen the extremes of depression. I've seen the extremes of anxiety. Um, and I think sometimes medicalizing things can disempower the person as well. You know, um, I think, you know, we, we're in control of our own moods to a certain extent. Certainly people who are depressed aren't. Um, and I, I, you know, I'd be very clear about that, but, but we also can do things to make ourselves feel better. But if you, if you, if you, if you, as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Abdicate all the power and the responsibility for your for your for your emotional well being to a nameless disease, and only medication can make me better. Uh, I think I think we do ourselves a disservice. I'm not saying depression doesn't exist. I'm not saying anxiety doesn't exist. It does because I've seen it and it's horrific. Um, I'm not saying that people who say they're depressed aren't depressed either. I just think um, I think sometimes we're too quick to medicalize human emotion at times, um, and and and. And sometimes, you know, and we are all human and we all feel sad and we all feel worried and we all feel grief and we all feel loss. Um, and that's fine because that's part of being alive. Um, and we can do things to, to help us way out of that and even medication to help our way out of it. We need to, but depression didn't exist before the, um, pharmaceutical companies discovered antidepressants. It wasn't, wasn't recognized as any kind of disease. And while I think that's wrong, I think we're in danger, sometimes we're in danger of going too far the other way and labeling do you think we have an issue in the same way that a thing started to happen where people would get a cold and they would say they got the flu? Yeah. It, it, Do you it, think it's a, there's self-misdiagnosis? I, I, I think so, but it's really difficult because because people can take that kind of opinion as a personal attack and it isn't. I've got, I once got in a big argument on the internet about, about whether everyone who's suicidal is depressed. And I was arguing, no, not everyone who's suicidal is depressed. Sometimes you're suicidal because life is shit. And it does, 
it doesn't mean that you're depressed. It just means your life is shit. You know, you've, you've lost custody of your kids. You've broken up with your girlfriend, whatever. You're going through a normal human reaction. And one of the impulses in your mind is, is I can't take any more of this and a, an impulsive suicide attempt. But somebody sitting down with you for, for, for two hours and, and the situation changing would cure all that. And if that's the case, then that's, that's not a depression, but it's, it, it's still valid. It's very difficult not to get yourself, you know, I need to be very careful because it's very difficult not to, not to kind of devalue people's experiences. I also, I also think that things like, um, people can be quite belittling towards things like OCD. That, that really annoys me. I've, I've met people with OCD and it's not just, I need to be tidy. I need things in a straight line and things like that. It's a horrendously crippling disease. Um, just like severe anxiety is horrendously crippling and, 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 tormented um and we're going back to is is is, um is mental health accepted it is but not not the urine soaked schizophrenic isn't accepted people still shy away from that person not the really tormented person who believes everyone's out to get them and and shouts in the street we still we still shy away from that person um because they're scary but they're but they're they're um but these are the people i work with and 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 they get better you know, um, but there, there is there is very much a movement for depression and anxiety to be accepted, but but I'd argue that the the extreme forms of mental illness people are still quite scared of. So moving on, railways of the world. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't think of a transition. No, that's fine. So, <laughs> so railways of the world. Of trains. Yeah, go on. What? Sorry. <laughs> railways of the world. So train games are a closed book to me. Why should I like them? Is this not just one step away from the anorak and the notebook? Well, I, th- I, th- I think as board gamers, we, we're in very dodgy territory if we start pouring a score on other people's hobbies. Um, I think one thing that we should have learned by now is that, you know, people can like what they like. Um, I'm, I'm not a, a train spotter, but I don't begrudge anybody who does. I, I'm not really a train game player. I just love this game. I've, I've never played Steam. I've never played Age of Steam. I've certainly never played any of the 18xx games. I've got no real desire to. Um, but there's something about this game, and I think it is about. I think I may well enjoy those, but but Railways of the World is so enjoyable for me to play that I. It may sound quite small minded, but I've got no desire to to move on from it and I'm happy I'm happy just sat there playing Railways of the World it's 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 a lovely game it's a pick up and deliver game where you're building a, a kind of network of rails and, and and moving one cube to another cube and things like that again it's a game where you need to kind of be planning ahead it's a game where you're building something and that's why I very much like in games as well when you're building a, a network, when you, you can look at it at the end of the game and say, that's mine. I did that. It's got lovely, very, very simple rules. Um, but very deep gameplay. And that's something else I really admire. I mean, that's where perhaps Nippon falls down is, is that, that kind of beautiful simplicity of a, of a pure Euro isn't there or an old fashioned Euro rather isn't there. And, um, and, and, but Railways of the World really has, it's got, I think it's got about four or five things you can do on a turn. Each one is really quite simple, but they the kind of, the, the greater picture that that paints is a really kind of quite deep complex game it doesn't need this track up here and that track up there and need to twiddle that knob and twiddle this knob which are all things i enjoy about nippon granted but this just needs four actions what you're going to do um and it'll all make a big tapestry which is is kind of greater than the sum of its parts and that's what i think why i like where was the world um and you get to go choo choo whenever you move things around so that that's good as well but 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 generally, it's just that, again, I've never had a bad game of Wales of the World. I've never had a game I've, I've not enjoyed. Um, it doesn't matter who I'm playing that game with, I always enjoy it. You popped up. I first heard you on the Dice Tower podcast when you were talking about you were talking about founding the Huddersfield board gamers and how to start a gaming group. And I was I was I was struck by this broad Yorkshire accent, which seemed slightly out of place in this podcast that was populated completely by americans but what made you decide to go into board game media well at that point it was in order to try and get my um board game group a few a few more members um i've 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 always been subscribed strongly to the kind of idea that if you fancy doing something you should just have a go at doing it um and i I, you know i was a big fan of the, uh, the dice tower um they hadn't been a a segment about how to start a board game group up i had just for about a year, I think before before I did that, I'd, I'd, I'd set up this board game group mainly to, to, in order to try, try and find people to play games with, and it had got off really well off the ground. And I'd spent a long time. Th- I'd, 
I put a lot of enthusiasm into creating it. I've spent a long time thinking about how to grow it. And I thought, do you know, another good way of growing it is to, to make, get it mentioned on the dice tower. And the best way of doing that is to, to throw a segment Tom's way and, and, and hope he uh, accepts it. Um, and, and he did. I mean, it took a long time for him to accept it. Uh, and, uh, you know, <laughs> it took about, I think about four months of me trying to fight myself, you know, wanting to send him an email saying, um, uh, I send you this thing. Um, but, but eventually he, he listened to it and, and wanted it. And, uh, I got it on the show and, and we did get a few uh, members. Um, and I also got some people kind of writing to me and, and saying they enjoyed it. Um, and that kind of reminded me of the, the blogging days. So I thought, well, this is good. Um, so, so I carried on after a while. I kind of ran out of ideas, um, you know, ran out of things I wanted to say. And rather than just repeat myself or, or kind of desperately scrabble around to kind of maintain a Z list, well, lower than that, really internet celebrity, I thought, well, I'll call it a day. Um, and then, so I, I stopped for about six months and, I, and, um, and then I was, I was messing around with, um, with Cora, my youngest daughter. And, and I was, I think I was on Reddit actually. And people, someone suggests, asked, what games do you play with your kids? And I started typing my reply and I thought, actually, no, I'll, I'll just, I'll just film something, um, on my webcam because I was in a creative mood. I mean, if you call that creativity. Um, and I enjoyed doing it. And more to the point, Cora really enjoyed doing it. And I thought, well, you know, I've already got Tom Vassell's email address. I'll, I'll throw him this for board game um, breakfast, which, which um, I, it's something else I really enjoy. I really still really enjoy that kind of format of, of things. Well, I still do. Um, and then he accepted that, and then off we go. Really, away we go. So you've got a new podcast, which I don't think you'd be offended if I said that it shamelessly uh, ripped off the panel game, the panel game structure. I mean, let's be frank. We're both of us in the process of ripping off a BBC Radio 4 structure here. <laughs> yeah. But, so you, you came up with a panel game, This Game is Broken, which is a legitimate comedy board game show. How did you start this? Why did you start it? And how successful has it been? Um, I, 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 I want to... If I'm, I'm absolutely honest, I, I, I got bored of the, the same type of um, board game podcast that I was listening to. Once you get to a certain level within the hobby, and I, th- I think I think this is a pretty well documented kind of phenomenon, you start not wanting to look for new board games all the time. You've got your collection, you know what you like. You get one or two here and there, but you're no longer that kind of voracious consumer of, of board game media, voracious consumer of board games. You know, getting five or six board games a a, a month, and and you know, building up this this massive collection and things. So you just start selling the stuff you don't really play that very often. You, you start refining your tastes and things like that. And as you do that, you tend to stop listening to board game podcasts, stop consuming board game media. At least I certainly did, because because I wasn't interested in what was new quite so much. And I wasn't constantly on the lookout for things. And these these shows, I mean, I, I, far be it for me to criticise anyone else, because I, I, I you know, I, I'm not saying I, I'm anything better, but... It's the same stuff over and over again. And I wanted something else to listen to. Um, and there wasn't anything else to listen to. Um, there's a, there's a few podcasts here and there that did things differently. You know, yourself, um, the Dice Towers, I was being very enjoyable. Um, there's low, I won't, I won't mention all the ones because I'll, I'll miss somebody out and then, but, but I wanted something that was entertaining rather than informative. And I think that's something that's really missing. I think the, the board game media world is, it's grown to a point where there's room for that now. I think initially there wasn't. Initially it was informative is the way to go, but, but now it's, it, there's room for something that's entertaining. That's not really that bothered about informing anybody or anything because you probably know it already. And so I wanted to entertain people and, and I was very fortunate in that I know some very entertaining people who are significantly more entertaining than myself. Um, and so I, I managed to persuade, well, I didn't persuade them to be fair. They were, they were, they were, Straight on board. Matthew Jude, um, who is a, a, a become a very good friend of mine, actually. Um, I only knew him from saying hello because he was also a contributor on the Dice Tower. But, but, you know, I spent this weekend with him, actually. Um, and then Dave Loser, who's a very talented stand-up comedian, well, improvisational comedian over in Germany. Um, and then the brothers Murph, who this kind of force of, force of nature. Um, and they're all Dice Tower contributors. Um, and they're all very, very funny people. And I thought, let's get 
I've always been a massive fan of the, the the British board game format, which is is kind of alien to to a lot of Americans as well. I mean, I don't, you know, some people know about it, but but I think wait, wait, don't tell me is is kind of as close as it gets over there. People keep comparing us to whose lines anyway, which we're nothing like really, but it's the closest comparison they can get to a kind of British British. You know, panel game. I think, um, I, I model ourselves on Nevermind the Buzzcocks and they think it's all over, which are two focused panel games focused on a particular topic, um, with music and, and sport. Um, and with a bit of, uh, I'm sorry, I'm a clue thrown in for, for the silliness. But yeah, I wanted to entertain people. I wanted to be entertained myself. I made the podcast I wanted to listen to. And it's been, it's gone down really well. I mean, we, we're not the biggest podcast in the world. We're not got the massive biggest, um, audience, but, but everyone who listens to us has has really enjoyed it. We, we a lot of people say we're one of the you know the podcasts that they they wait for. Um, lots of anticipation. Um, so so yeah, I'm, I'm, it's it's one of my um, one of my favourite things to do at the moment is record that podcast. Cause it's hilarious because I've I've got some very funny friends. So your last game is not a board game and it's not an RPG. It's a skirmish minis game, and this is Frostgrave. Why did you choose Frostgrave? Well, as I say, I'm, I'm an omni gamer, and as well as cutting my teeth on D and D in my youth, I you know cut my teeth on Necromunda um, and and uh, to a lesser extent Warhammer 40k and things like that. And and recently, I've been getting back into that world um, and not wanting to spend a fortune on on large armies and things like that, and not really being interested in large armies and things because that's a a hobby in itself. Um, I've started to play more and more skirmish games. These little kind of games you play on a four by four map with bits of terrain uh, you paint your minis I've, I've always enjoyed painting and things like that dipped in and out of that all my hobbying career um, and Frostgrave is just a just a perfect example of it basically um, you, you you control a wizard and his band of uh, band of mercenaries trying to steal various bits of treasure from a from a frozen city um, and it's a campaign game and so you are um Every game you play, your, your war band improves. Some of your guys die. Your wizard gets better. Um, it's kind of a little narrative going along there. Um, and it's just a lot of fun. It's just a lot of fun. It's a, it's a lot of fun to play. Again, it's, I don't see the point in games like, um, I can't think of one off the top of my head, almost like Descent. Um, if you want a tactical minis game, then just play a skirmish game. If you want a role playing game, just play D and D. Just just play the best version of that genre you want. Don't I don't like the oh well. This is like the board game equivalent of a blur. It's like well, why 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 don't you just play things that board games do best? Granted, that's all my own personal taste. I I realise that, but if I wanted to play Doom the board game or 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 Descent or something like that. I just just play Fosgrave because it's better because you you get to you've got more freedom you've got you've got more intricate rules you've got it's it, it, the, the whole thing works better um, than 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 being confined board games confine you to things and that's great for games like Nippon it's great for games like Railways of the World great for Skulking but but when you're wanting to when you're trying to simulate a, a you know an expansive thing trying to simulate theme. Then, then I don't think if you want to simulate theme in battle, then you're much better off going with a minis game than a board game. If you want to simulate theme in narrative, then you're much better off going with D and D or any kind of role playing game than you are with a board game because you just do it better. Um, and so, so why waste your time? That's what I say. So one last question: You're driving up to the cabin. You're fleeing the oncoming disaster. The car skids and the back seat flies open. Four of the games fly out down a ravine, swept away by a river. Which game do you hope is lying on the back seat? I think um, D&D, I think because of its endless replayability. Um, and I know we're meant to be talking about board games here, but, 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 but D&D is the most versatile of all those, and so I'd have to go with that one. So if people want to contact you and see what you're up to, how do they do that? Um, well, the best way probably is to either um, download our podcast, which is This Game is Broken. That's You can find that anywhere you find uh, podcasts um, and Spotify these days as well because we, we're up to date with uh, with things like that. Or you can contact me if you want on thisgameisbrokenpodcast at gmail.com. You can also watch myself and my daughter on um, Board Game Breakfast over on the Dice Tower. And that's that's all I'm doing at the moment. But that's enough, I think. Well, Dan Hughes, thank you very much. Thank you.
And if you want to suggest a guest, or if you want to say something nice about the show, or if you want to say something horrible about the show, you can contact me on at 5 Games for Doomsday on Twitter, or you can send me an email at 5 Games for Doomsday at gmail.com. You can visit the website, 5 Games for Doomsday.com, or you can go to the BGG Guild. And if I haven't had to have been choppered to my woodland pleasure palace to avoid the multicoloured fallout and the radioactive Groucho Marxes, I'll see you in two weeks for another Five Games for Doomsday. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.